Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The Gospel reading for last Sunday, the second Sunday in Advent, ended somewhat ominously. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This week's Gospel lesson picks up on that thread in Luke's narrative about the kingdom of God having come in Jesus Christ. But today, John the Baptist is languishing in Herod's prison. His own disciples are attending to his physical needs, as was common in those days, because prisons were not exactly known for looking out for the well-being of their occupants. John dispatches two of his followers to Jesus to approach him with a question. Now, while it's a superficially simple question with just an either-or answer, it's actually a critically important, even profound question, theologically speaking. You see, for John, Jesus' identity is more than just a theological question. It's a matter of John's very worldview, his essential existence, his vocation, his depth of being. If Jesus is the one who was to come, then John's suffering in Herod's prison has a purpose. If Jesus is the Messiah, then John is being persecuted for the sake of the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus brings with him. Now, most of the time when we hear this passage about John's question to Jesus, I think it conjures up a question in our own minds. And that is, is John sitting there in that prison with little hope of a reprieve, beginning to have some doubts about his call, perhaps even doubts about his faith in God. He then seeks assurance from Jesus that he is the one who has been prophesied from ancient times. Now, there's really nothing wrong with seeing John in that light. He's obviously got certain hopes and expectations just as we do. He's got an idea about how the plan of God should play out in his own mind. Such behavior and such thinking is part of our human condition. And John the Baptist is certainly very human. Yes, he may have been the greatest prophet. He may have been the greatest man who ever lived, as Jesus said in our lesson today. But he is still just a man. But there may be an alternative interpretation that we might consider. Perhaps John is sitting in that prison cell knowing that his time is soon to be up and he's actually concerned for his own disciples. As the one who was to come before the Lord and prepare his way, John had certain responsibilities. And by God's grace, he fulfilled them, calling people to repentance and proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. But also as a good teacher, he knows when it is time to send his own students on to the next level of their development. And so by dispatching them to speak with Jesus, John allows them to see and to hear firsthand those signs and those wonders that Jesus was performing. 
Such a willingness to take the spotlight off of himself and to focus it on Jesus is a hallmark of John's ministry. A willingness that we should hope and pray more ministers in our day would exhibit. That attitude alone makes John quite an extraordinary, remarkable kind of man. But either explanation of John's intentions are quite suitable, or as we say at the beginning of the communion liturgy, good, right, and salutary. The reason that either of the explanations works is because Jesus and Jesus' answer to John's question is the real focus. Are you the one who is to come, they ask. And with these words given, them to, given to them by John, but perhaps also flowing from their own hearts as well, they ask very unambiguously whether Jesus is God's Messiah, God's deliverer of His people. But the phrase they use is rather poorly translated in many of our English Bibles. You see, there are no capital letters used here, so in our modern way of thinking and interpreting this text, there's a pretty good chance that we might never get the idea that what they're really asking of Jesus is a proper title, a title that was used for the Messiah. Yes, the Messiah means anointed one, but on account of all the Old Testament prophecies, he's also known as the one who was to come, or the coming one. And so it is a title that the Jews of John's and Jesus' day were very familiar with. And so their question to him from John and perhaps from their own hearts as well is not just a desire to end their theological contemplations, but a very real, very sincere one. John is suffering as the Messiah's forerunner, as his herald. And so he and his disciples have every reason to want to have some certainty and Jesus' answer to them is very, very clear. No, it's not clear in the sense that Jesus says, absolutely, I am the Christ. And he doesn't say either to go tell John to take heart or be reassured yourselves that I am Yahweh's long-promised Messiah to Israel and to the world. No, it's not that clear. But also, we have to understand that the words he uses would leave no doubt to any Jew who understood what the Scriptures said and foretold about the Messiah. The quote that Jesus uses says with certainty that he is that Messiah, the one who was to come. Jesus says this, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And where do we get these indicators, these job description phrases for the coming one? Well, Jesus' words impart the fact that He is directly fulfilling Isaiah's prophetic description of the coming one. Isaiah 29 contains the following. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35 also. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall a lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
Now, if you go back and you read that portion of Luke's Gospel account between last week's Gospel lesson from chapter 3 and this week's reading from Luke 7, you'll see that Jesus has been doing precisely those things. Since the beginning of His public ministry, He has preached in the synagogues. He has cast out demons. He has healed many of their sicknesses, including the lame and the blind. And it is no wonder then that He tells John's disciples, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Yes, to anyone who's paying attention, anyone who knows the prophecies, Jesus is indeed God's Messiah. But this reading comes to us in the midst of the season of Advent, on the Sunday of joy, pink candle and all. But John is in prison awaiting his end. What could this reading possibly have to do with Advent joy? What joy could this message bring to John in Herod's prison? For that matter, what joy could this message bring to you in your prison of sin and in your captivity to death and to the power of the devil? Well, if we are to look at John's predicament from a worldly viewpoint, we might think that the best thing for John, that thing that he needs the most, would be to be released from prison. And yet, are we sure? Is that what John needs the most? In all of the challenges and the difficulties of your life, what is it that you need most? What John needs to know most at this moment is that what he suffers, he suffers for a purpose. He needs to know that there is a rescue from the despair of this world, an end to the evil around him. And especially on a weekend like this, following the senseless but all too common and even predictable horror and tragedy of the shootings in Connecticut, some will say, well, everything happens for a reason. Some will even claim that such events happen in accordance with God's will. Others will say that God was absent or inattentive to humanity's needs that day by allowing such wanton destruction. Or they will say that God is even non-existent. Now we know that that is patently false and we must avoid the devil's temptations to go down that path. Evil and death are not God's will. Righteousness and life are His will. But we've managed to ruin what He established through our prideful rebellion. Even when we might see Him allowing evil to have its day and to show us His people and all people are desperate needs for His governance, His protection, His forgiveness, and His salvation. He is not a God far away. Nor is He a God which allows or even causes unchecked evil. The fact of the matter is, sometimes the real reason, as opposed to the reason we've set our minds on, are not the same thing. For example, John is not languishing in that prison so that the glory of God might be proclaimed, but rather because Herod was a wicked and evil man. It just so happens that God uses the evil and the wickedness of Herod and his kind to his own advantage to proclaim the authority of God over evil, over Herod's authority and the authority of those like him. And so with John the Baptist as our case in point, the meaning of it all becomes clearer. Jesus not only tells John's disciples who he is, but he also tells everyone within earshot who John is. 
He is the messenger of God, as Malachi had foretold, sent before the Messiah as his messenger, the herald for the Lord's Messiah, the prophet of the coming one. Now, you're probably quite familiar with those prophecies from Isaiah that Jesus quoted to support his Messiahship. You've probably heard them before, probably on this time of year, on years past. You've also probably been less familiar with the question that Jesus then asks. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now that's a rather strange, odd expression, isn't it? A reed shaken by the wind. Yet, if you look at our coins here in the United States these days, we know that they have the inscriptions of presidents on them. Lincoln, Jefferson, Roosevelt, Washington, and Kennedy. Rome also had the profiles of their Caesars inscribed on the coins. But in Israel, we knew that it was explicitly forbidden by the law of God to have graven images. And so on their coins were symbols, artwork. When King Herod came to power, new coins were minted with symbols of his choosing that meant something to him. And his favorite inscription was that of a reed from the shore of the Sea of Galilee. A reed symbolized the beauty and the fertility of the area that Herod ruled. The reed was a symbol of Herod as a ruler or a power, just as the eagle or the head of the Statue of Liberty represents American power on our coins. Nevertheless, our culture is overwhelmed with images and graphics because in our day and age they're so easy to generate and even easier to reproduce. But in the ancient world, oftentimes the only art that a common person would come into contact with on a regular basis were those images on coins. And so when Jesus asked this seemingly odd little question about going to see a reed blowing in the wind, He's not just asking people about a quivering plant easily bent over in the breeze. Actually, the people would have known full well whom Jesus was talking about and contrasting to John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you just come to see a, another passing king like that Herod down the road? A man who lives in palaces and wears fine clothes? Or did you come to see a prophet? Yes, you did. And you have hope that John is more than just one of the many prophets. John is the prophet, the last in the line of earthly prophets. It was his job to foretell the coming of God's great deliverer of Israel, the one who would be the eternal prophet, eternal priest, eternal king. Now on the question of whether John was just being a good pastor to his disciples or whether he was really confused by the ministry of Jesus, I leave that to your conscience shaped by the Holy Spirit. This is a question on which Scripture isn't real specific and giving us a conclusive understanding. And that's because it's not really essential or material to our understanding of who Jesus is. But John knows who he himself is. And he was pretty sure who Jesus was as well. Yet it may have seemed to John that Jesus was not doing those sorts of things that he expected. Perhaps John, like many, 
had been tempted to think that Jesus would be an earthly king and that he would unseat Herod and cast him down from his throne as Mary had sung about in the Magnificat. Yes, the mighty would indeed be cast down, but not according to our notions or according to our methods. And so in speaking Isaiah's words to John so that they might be in turn conveyed to John through his disciples, Jesus confirmed and confronted what sort of Messiah he intended to be. He is not to be Herod's earthly rival, but rather the eternal king. Jesus' kingdom will certainly challenge and overcome and outlast all of the Herods in the world. And that's because Jesus is indeed the one to come. John the Baptist's role as the greatest prophet was to point to this coming one, even to the point of his own imprisonment and death. And in John's death as the forerunner of the king, we also have a foreshadowing of that which awaits the king himself when he receives his crown. You see, his coming, his death, and his resurrection, all of that was done to make you a citizen of a kingdom. The kingdom of God which Jesus came to proclaim and to usher in and to restore. And this is the season in which we await the return of our King. So prepare the royal highway then. Come, Lord Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. In His holy name, amen.